The Startup to Scale Up Game Plan is brought to you by Alpina Search, Europe's premier talent search firm, dedicated to helping technology startups and scale-ups recruit high-impact executives. Now over to your host, Gary Riemann. I'm delighted to welcome my special guest, Ombre Subiran, to the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan. Ombre is the founder and CEO, or as she likes to view herself, the sea captain at a company called Kaiko. Kaiko is a cryptocurrency market data provider. In June 22, they raised, or certainly they announced, the raising of a 55 million dollar Series B led by eight roads. Kaiko aims to become the Bloomberg of the blockchain and cryptocurrency worlds. So uh, Ombre, welcome to the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan. Thank you very much. Thanks, Gary, and happy to be here. Absolutely delighted to have you, especially as you had to drag yourself away from all those little ones that have arrived in your house earlier today. Now, you were a pretty successful banker. You'd risen up the ranks and you gave up your banking career to become a tech entrepreneur. What was it that led you to make that pivot in your life? So I guess a couple of things. The first one is is really genuine passion, I would say, for what was what I consider to be a game-changing technology, and that was blockchain. But most interestingly, I was convinced since the early days of looking and understanding and working on on blockchain that this could have a very significant impact on the traditional financial industry and that what I was doing back then, so I I was working as an equity derivative uh, structurer for HSBC. And honestly, I really loved my job, loved the team and the people I was working with, but I could kind of see how blockchain could actually make specifically actually the derivatives industry in the financial sector and an even better, more efficient system. And and I think the the interest that I had back then and that I still have today for blockchain goes beyond pure crypto, which is, you know, in the sense when we talk about Bitcoin and, and Ethereum, we obviously think about the price of Bitcoin going up and down and, and the price of ETH and the price of all those other cryptocurrencies. What fundamentally attracted my interest in the early days was how industries can use blockchain as an underlying technology to manage database code and transactions. And that is something that I thought was really interesting. And when I left to basically focus on blockchain, I didn't think I was entirely leaving finance and banking. I thought, you know, it's it's kind of, we, we have an, an expression in France that is you jump back so you can better jump forward. And, and I think that's absolutely what we're doing here with Kaiko. We're working on data and how data services can better empower decision-making in a blockchain-enabled world. And today, obviously, most of the of the blockchain data that we're servicing is people that are investing and trading in, in crypto assets. But, but I think the, the vision there and what made me do the move away from finance goes beyond the crypto asset investment thesis, but rather enabling applications that will require data. And and the most obvious industry that will be transformed by blockchain is the financial services industry. And we're seeing that already with what we call decentralized finance, DeFi. DeFi is basically an entire pan of financial services that 
rely entirely on, on blockchain infrastructures. But if you go back to that time when you chose to make that pivot, I mean, presumably you could have got involved in blockchain and DeFi staying within the corporate world, but something drove you to leave the corporate world behind and become a tech entrepreneur. What was that? So that was really opportunistic, honestly. I've been extremely lucky. I, I met the original founder of Kaiko called Pascal Gauthier back in 2014. In 2014, I, I, I had been interested by blockchain for a couple of years and I was being quite vocal about the, the, my blockchain interest. So bankers put us in touch with Pascal. At the time, Pascal was starting Kaiko and he was looking to sell Bitcoin data to financial institutions. So we met then. And a couple of years later, Kaiko was not really making any progress just because it, there was an absence of addressable market. There was not so many financial institutions that were ready back in the days to take crypto seriously and to take crypto seriously enough to require having reliable data and actionable data. So from 2014 to 2016, early 2017, Kaiko was you know, a great idea, but slightly too early on its time. And that's when I decided to move on from HSBC. And I reconnected with Pascal, who was also himself moving on from Kaiko onto Ledger. So Pascal is the current CEO of Ledger, which is a very large crypto custodian. And when I when I reached out, I told him, listen, I, I think the space is growing pretty fast, pretty significantly, and that the timing for financial institutions to look at crypto is, is pretty close. We're, we're starting to see a market emerge, and I think it's the right time for Kaiko. And at the time he told me, listen, if you're, you know, if you're interested in Kaiko and, and convinced that this is the right time, how about you help me with the company? And that quote unquote help transformed into uh, an acquisition of a majority stake into the company. So I acquired a large portion of Kaiko from Pascal initially and then more later on. And so I, I think that the combination of me being ready from a professional standpoint to move on and the opportunity of acquiring a business that I really believed in, which is data and servicing data to financial investors in a space that I very much believed into, you know, stars aligned and I made the move and, and left banking and, and, and joined Kaiko and have been focusing on Kaiko since. So you felt that the market opportunity was there, you felt that the timing was right. And maybe that um, when Pascal had launched Kaiko, he was two or three years too early. But as you got involved, you felt that things were about to accelerate. You clearly did get the timing right. But I was extremely lucky that when I got the timing right, I already had Pascal's inventory of historical data to monetize from day one. So that was actually the beauty of in that specific business being too early transformed into a competitive advantage early on, because when we saw the emergence of an addressable market, meaning, you know, initially we didn't have banks coming and needing data, but there were some like arbitrage funds, some retail kind of pro quantitative traders that needed data in order to do back testings and to test their models. And so the immense competitive advantage that I had then is that when people started needing data, I had an inventory. I had a database. We have data at Kaiko going all the way back to 2011, thanks to Pascal being so early and, and grabbing as much data as he could in the early days. We had a database that was absolutely unique and that no one could basically just find online at that point in time. 
And I know something else that you're passionate about besides the market is the culture, the team you're building, the culture you're building. Those things are really crucial to, to you. In a previous conversation, you told me it's not about raising money, it's how you spend it. So I'd love to hear more about Kaiko's culture and the team that you're building. Yeah, absolutely. So yes, I think people is the most important assets of a company. You could argue that our database is equally important because one without the other is pretty useless. But I, I put a strong focus on the team. And, and the truth is when I started and I took over after Pascal, I didn't inherit from, from a team. There was no employees and no clients back then. And so the early joiners and the people who helped me build the company initially, obviously kind of set the tone for how we were going to grow the business. And uh, we were lucky because we I, I've hired very, very international people. Honestly, there are not so many people back in 2016 that were ready to kind of make their career a crypto data company in a world with a, a relatively shallow addressable market. And I found who I could find and people that were passionate enough by the space and convinced enough that data was important. Those people were all very international. We had in the early days, I think when we had about 10 employees, we had six or seven different nationalities, everybody from different backgrounds. English was the working language, which is relatively rare for French companies and French startups. We had this very kind of open-minded culture, which came from who we were by essence. We were an international group and we had to basically respect all the differences. And, and I think that was great that we started off like this because it just then grew very, very organically. And we it was easy for us to go international. It was easy for us to open offices in the US, office, open offices in, in Asia and in London and all, in all these different countries just behind, because we had that in our DNA from day one. So I think that's something that's very important, this, this idea of openness. We have a very diverse team and I use the word diversity beyond gender. Turns out we actually also have a lot of female employees, but I think diversity is much more than just male, female. It's also about how many religions, how many cultures, how many background, how many social categories, all of the background of everyone is so important and so value additive for a team. And this is something we've protected over the years. And I'm incredibly proud of that today. And now going back to your point about fundraising, I completely agree. You know, when we thought about how we were going to announce the Series A, Series B, all the different successive rounds of funding, I always insist that we shouldn't just announce a raise for two reasons. One, the raise is not an achievement. The achievement will be to build a successful, profitable company in which everybody's happy to work in. And so the question is, what are we going to do with this money? How are we going to spend it? How are we going to create value for ourselves, for shareholders and for clients and for the industry in general? And so that is the, the way I communicate to the team. And obviously we celebrated the Series B because it's an important milestone. But for me, the definition of success is not about raising. It's about growing and growing in a healthy, balanced company where people are happy to work at. I had an interesting story because when we were growing pretty fast last year, I missioned a headhunter to hire anybody from the product team of a very specific company that I liked and that I thought were creating incredible products. And I told the headhunter, go and grab me anyone you can from that product team. Three weeks later, the headhunter came back and told me, I've tried, nobody wants to leave. 
And I told that story to my team because I was like, for me, that's the definition of success. If we are a company that is successful enough from a profitability, product, branding, everything standpoint, that people want to come and poach from us, that means we're a good company. But also if people, if employees don't want to leave, it means we're an even better company. And I think that is a very good definition of success. You know, we want to be the kind of companies that everybody says we need their guys, but none of our guys wants to go. And I think that is so important. And especially in these times of kind of economic crisis and market downturns and generally difficult working conditions in how we run a business. Everybody talks about managing your cash flow, making sure that, you know, extending your runway, et cetera. And I really insist on like protect your employees, protect your team, because those are the ones that are actually going to enable you to extend your runway and manage your cash, et cetera. Absolutely. And going back to that fundraising again, I know, I know that um, you've made it clear that just raising the money alone, we shouldn't get carried away with that. It's what you do with the money. That's far more important. But you have raised your Series B during both a serious downturn in crypto values. I mean, some of these, well, some some of the more fringe cryptocurrencies have literally collapsed, and some of the more mainstream ones have dropped by maybe 50% or more. And challenging conditions for raising VC funding. So it's been a really intense period for you. I'd love to hear more about that recent fundraise and how you managed to drive it through. Yeah, so correct. I mean, it was tough. I think I'm I'm blessed with having very good investors and our lead, our ATROs, our lead for the Series B has been incredibly, uh, you know, strong during that period of time. We definitely went through a, a pretty advanced, you know, audit due diligence in order to make sure that everything was square and, and uh, up to the standards that we presented as we were pitching. But I think the team, as in my colleagues, really, really kind of powered through that phase in order to get through Series B and focus as quickly as possible back on operating, because that's also the the kind of double issue here is that it's harder to raise, but it's also harder to operate your business. And so the more time you spend struggling through either one of those two, <laughs> fundraising or operating, is detrimental to the other one, right? So either you say, okay, I need to make sure that my business really runs properly, but that takes a lot of time. And as, as you know, fundraising also takes a lot of time. So I think the team was really incredibly kind of worked as a team very well and powered through those first six months of the year. We closed our, our fundraising in June and we kind of started going to market early March. So it was a very, very kind of short period of time. We managed to keep it short, but we also were blessed with existing investors all reinvesting into the round, everybody, you know, wanting to do their pro rata. And so we had to find one external lead who could come and bring a lot of new expertise to the table. But we had them who didn't back out any moment from the deal and our existing investors closing around and, and being very supportive. So I think good good investors, you know, really make a big difference, especially in those challenge times. And that was a big difference for us. Absolutely. And you certainly do have some really excellent investors backing you. There's no no doubt about that. And there's something else you mentioned to me last time, and I promised not to make a big song and dance about it, but we did say we would briefly discuss it. So what's one interesting thing that you'd like to share with me 
about yourself? <laughs> well, since you ask, I had a baby the day we closed the the round. So that was the the funny story is that I was literally in the birth room. And so it was double celebratory night that day. We closed our round. And, uh, and after that, I could... Uh, relax and spend a couple of days with a, a really cute uh, newborn girl. So it was happy days. But indeed, the whole thing was a, a blessing and a curse in some way. The curse was that, well, you know, you're traveling around the world, you're on a roadshow meeting investors, six months pregnant. That wasn't necessarily the most optimal thing. And I think that reinforces how much investors have trust in us as a business and me as a founder that, you know, that we would still make it and that wouldn't change the face of anything. But it was also a blessing because it enabled me to time box the fundraise in some way. I was, you know, in my head, it, we had to close before birth. Uh, just because, <laughs> you know, no, in some way, like I'm fine working a lot and powering through. In all honesty, like I didn't really intend or want to stop anyway. Uh, I really love my job and love the people I'm doing it with. So that the baby wasn't an issue, but I just didn't want to deal with the the stress of having to close pretty intense fundraising with a newborn. So in my head, it was series B first, baby after. <laughs> and I think the fact that we time boxed it really, really helped getting that over the finish line in a very, very kind of reasonable period of time. You know, all in, we started fundraising in March, we closed in June. That's like three, four months for a relatively large fundraise. And so that was clearly an element that probably added a little bit of pressure, but also a positive pressure. And investors also have been really, uh, really great with that. You know, I've been very transparent. I was like, we need to close that before mid-June. And we successfully did it. And it's really, it took efforts from all parties involved. In your opinion, Web 3.0, is it real or is it just some marketing hype? So I think one thing that is very that is an interesting way to think about crypto assets or, or digital currencies or tokens, whatever you call them, is that in some way, Web 2.0 was about social network and having kind of all of the online tools for people to interact with one another, right? So we had social networks, Facebook, Instagram, et cetera. That's great. But what missed to internet in general since the invention of internet was a kind of unit of account or a monetary system that was native to internet. And I think that's something that's very powerful about crypto is that it is inherently native to internet. You only need an internet connection in order to get access to crypto assets or digital currencies. And, and you can participate in the network very easily as, as long as you have an internet connection. And it is building a system that enables any internet participant to exchange value. You could argue that you can do that because you can pay online, right, with your credit card. But the strong, the strength here is that you have a unit of account that serves as a monetary system for the internet at large in a decentralized way, right? That is a peer-to-peer -peer network that is maintained by the network and that is basically belongs to the network. And that is the big difference between Web 2 and Web, and Web 3. It's really about having this existing monetary unit of account that enables a peer-to-peer -peer exchange of value without the necessity of relying on a centralized entity. 
And, and that is the strength of Web3. Then you could argue that there is a lot of hype when we, you know, we see all those, you know, those NFT summer, I guess, uh, last summer. And there is a, a bit of overuse and overhype around the word Web3 and what it means. But if we boil it down to what the essence of Web3 is, for me, it is an internet that is enabled with a unit of account or a unit of value that internet users can exchange without having to rely on a centralized system. And that is important. And I'll give a very um, relatively un easy example of an industry that is enhanced significantly with Web3. Gaming, right? I'm not a gamer myself, but I live with a, another founder who runs a blockchain gaming company. So I've been looking at the space pretty closely, let's put it this way. Gaming in the old days, gaming without blockchain, you pay for a game and you play on your game on your computer or online or whatever, and you can create stuff. You can win gold in your game. You can win swords, skins, everything. But technically, anything that you gain into a game belongs to the game, right? Whereas in a blockchain-enabled game, in a Web3 game, you can create assets, digital assets that by nature are exportable, portable, and that you can own directly. And that is interesting, right? When you create value in a blockchain game, you can extract that value from the game and you can go trade that value on an exchange. You can store it on a USB key. You can store it on your computer. You can trade it. It's, it's yours in the blockchain sense of yours, in the ownership sense of yours. And I think that's interesting. So there's clearly... For every new technology, there's always hype. There's always people that are adding Web3 and Metaverse and a bunch of keywords to create the buzz and give the impression that they're the new business people should invest in or focus on. But I think really, if we boil it down to what it means, we're talking about a new form of internet where you can attach value and where value can be exchanged between owners of that value natively within the internet without relying on a centralized party. And, and that is the big difference. I'm keen to get an understanding of how you have coped with everything happening in the world. I mean, there has been a lot of upheaval, especially in 22 in your sector, but the last two to three years seem to have been a roller coaster ride for all of us. And I think it, it puts a lot of stress and strain on entrepreneurs and their teams in terms of how they handle the chaos, the trauma of the world we're living in. So I'm wondering how you, you know, building up your family, building up your business at the same time, how do you cope with the stresses and strains? Do you take time out? Do you have a mentor? Do you meditate? Do you do anything that enables you to cope with the more challenging moments in your day or week? So. I'm going to be a, a bit unconventional here as a founder. I hate exercise. I don't exercise. I don't do sport. It's absolutely not a way to unwind for me. I guess first thing is really, I honestly really enjoy what I do. And I think that's the case of most entrepreneurs. So, so that's probably not the right answer, but I think still it helps that you're happy to get to the office in the morning and, you know, happy to also get back home and, and, and see the, and see the kids. From a personal standpoint, I manage my family a little bit like I manage the business. Like I, I, it has to be very organized. And I think the most scarce resource of entrepreneurs is probably time. And so it's about really, really managing time. And that means not wasting hours and hours, even in your personal life. So I try to spend quality time. I try to be home 
you know, at least an hour before bedtime and to enjoy time in the morning uh, with the girls. So I have two baby girls. One is now two months old and the other is 18 months. So they're still babies. So, you know, I think that's my meditation part. I, you know, when you're with a baby, they're very demanding. So they need your attention. You can't be on your phone. You can't really be thinking about something else at the same time. So I have my hour in the morning of, of baby time and in the evening. And I think that really is the, the two hours in the day where I entirely unfocus from work and focus on whatever, building Legos and playing with dolls and whatever. Maybe it sounds silly, but that is a true proper disconnection from work. And that is one that is actually very enjoyable because obviously you're spending time with your kids. I'm obsessed with being super well organized uh, when it comes to getting help. I think Obviously, you know, I'm I'm lucky that I can, but but I make sure that I never end up in catastrophic situation or scenarios at home where I have to try to work at the same time as taking care of the kids and all. I really try to compartment those. And I'm an office person. I, I hate remote work. I cannot focus at home with kids. I think I, I like to enjoy my time at home and then take the car, go to work. And then when I'm at work, focus on work and then come home and focus on home. And I try to not mix everything. Obviously, at night, there is always many <laughs> moments where you have to get back to emails and take a call with the West Coast of the US at like a crazy hour in the night, et cetera. That always happens. But I, I try to really, you know, leave home, go to work. And so I can have those two lives basically um, well segmented and, and, and enjoy both separately. That's how I do it. I don't know if there's a secret recipe, obviously, but, uh, but that's how I, I keep my sanity and we were super lucky. We have two amazing grandmothers that are very helpful and very uh, responsive to whenever we need. So that's really, a, I guess, a blessing that's not every every mother have to have available grandmothers. <laughs> <laughs> that's sure. Not these days. And, and you mentioned you prefer to be in the office and working in the office. Most companies, most startups and scale-ups I come across in the tech sector have either a remote first or a hybrid working arrangement. So is your personal preference to be in the office rolled out throughout the whole company or do you allow more flexibility across the rest of the team? Almost everyone, and when I almost everyone is more than 75% of Kaiko of my colleagues like to come to the office. For many reasons, we're, we're um, either the... Because we're a very international company, even in the Paris office, we have a lot of younger colleagues that came from abroad. And so they just enjoy being in the office because working from home is just, I guess, more boring. I'm incredibly proud of the culture that we've built and people actually like to be together. So that's also something that brings people to the office is since everybody goes, it creates that snowball effect where because people are there, more people want to come. That's one thing. And then second thing is the other part of the of the company that do have kids are, I think, a little bit like me and find that it's just easier to come to work to focus. So during the lockdown, we had the first big lockdown in March to May 2020, where in France, at least, you were not even allowed to walk in the streets. So that part was full remote. And honestly, that was a hard time for us as a team. So we organized, you know, we, we even organized virtual hangout sessions, coffees, that was more the informal end of the day chit chat that we usually have at the coffee machine. We tried to recreate a bit of those moments that were relaxed team moments through the virtual tools we had. Honestly, not so great. 
And in June, when the full, full lockdown was lifted in France, everybody went back to the office. And then we had a new lockdown six months later. And at that point, everybody was like, we just need a, a paper from the employer saying that they should come to work. And I was surprised everybody wanted to get that paper and everybody wanted to be in the office. So I, I didn't really enforce getting back to the office after the first lockdown. It was a very, very natural, organic thing that came from colleagues asking to be together. And today, what we just say is, you know, as long as you come at least four days a week, you get your desk. And if you come less than two days a week, you don't get a desk. You get a hot desk. You always have, you know, a place to sit and a screen to plug your laptop on. But I think that also reinforces the fact that people want to come, like to have their own desk, likes to find colleagues at the coffee machine. We really have that culture. Then we have a few, especially in the engineering team, a few full remote people, but that's more the rarity than the norm. You haven't experienced any pushback from candidates who really don't want to be regularly in the, the office. That's not been an issue for you when you've been out there hiring talent. We have three very, very, uh, I mean, our, all of our engineers and colleagues are amazing, but turns out when we're looking for specific roles, we found two relatively harder profiles to fill. One was a, a strong blockchain engineer and the other one was an infrastructure engineer, so a site reliability engineer to manage the actual physical servers. Those were two roles that were pretty hard to find. And we found those two candidates that were full remote because they had a lot of kids and they lived in houses outside of Paris. And so they are full remote. That was how they were hired, but they come once a once a month for a few days, if not a week in the office in Paris. And we found a very good balance here, but that's rarer. Now, that being said, we were not a you know decentralized full remote company, but we do have offices in Paris, London, New York, and Singapore. So we are a global company with offices in a couple of locations. And we ask people to come to either of those locations. And let's do my uh, back to the future section. So if you were to travel back in time about six years and meet your younger self, just as you were about to step into the world of being an entrepreneur, what advice would you give you the young hombre? What have you learned over the last six years that you didn't know then that you'd love to be able to give your younger self some some advice on on what to expect and how to be successful on the entrepreneurial journey? That's a tough one. It's it's hard to impro uh, on that answer. I think it's a, it's a very good question, a very interesting one, but one that requires a little bit of thinking. Honestly, I think when it comes to Kaiko, I think we need a, a few more years to to look back in order to see if the decisions, you know, I, I took over the past few years will, will pay off. So far, I'm pretty happy with how things are going at Kaiko. Honestly, I, I you know, I'm I'm I probably have a lot of entrepreneurial flaws that will I will realize in the future that things could have been done better. I think the one thing as a as a manager, as an as a founder that I probably um could have worked on better is because I was a sole founder, very often I needed to get the um my colleagues to kind of not approve but adhere to my decisions. And so I've probably spent a bit too much time convincing everyone and explaining why I took this and that decision rather than being a little bit more assertive and saying, okay, this is how we're going to do it. Let's just do it. And so I think that's, no, it's true, but that also is how it's my management style. And I think that also 
you know, accrues value to the the relationship and the and the values that we've built at the company. And I, I'm still extremely proud that one of the first employees that we've hired back in the days are still there today. They've grown incredibly well. They were, you know, hired fresh out of college. They were juniors and and they they learned, they grew with the company and today they're absolutely impressive. And they and they and so I, I think the I probably wasted maybe a lot of time in, in the early days and in, in being a little bit too focused on making sure that everybody was aligned with me rather than just going with it and and letting people follow. I think I wanted people to kind of lead with me. And and that probably slowed things down a bit at the beginning. But I think that transforms into into very healthy working relationships and trust with colleagues. And, and that is not so bad in the end. Again, we'll see how that scales, right? I, I think now that we're in a very good clown day to the name of the podcast, but now that we're moving into more of a scale-up organization, it's harder to get that personal, direct working relationship with everyone. We're almost 70 people now. And I think that's something I need to learn clearly is to accept that I cannot know everyone, speak to everyone, work with everyone and and get everybody's uh, adhesion to the decisions that I make, you know, and I care. I really care about the people. So I really, I get very upset and disappointed if, if, if just, you know, when we fail as managers and as founders to get the backing of everyone, I, it's still something that's a bit hard for me and probably something I need to work on. Well, I'm sure that doesn't happen too often. So Ombre, I'd like to wish you and your talented crew on the good ship Kaiko <laughs> huge success over the coming years. Thank you so much for joining me on this week's show. Thank you very much, Gary. Have a good uh, end of summer. This episode of the Startup to Scale Up Game Plan was brought to you by Alpina Search. Head over to www.alpinasearch.com for advice on scaling your technology startup and recruiting high-impact senior talent.